This morning I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we begin an emphasis on Sunday mornings on the church. We discover this morning that the church and that the individuals that make up the church body have a gospel. It's ours. It's our gospel. We're going to discover what that means because it's not a phrase that we made up. It's one that actually is found in the New Testament and there's a reason for it and we're going to discover that reason today. But as we begin this emphasis on the church, as a matter of fact, a couple of years ago we did a, a sermon series on the church. It was just called Ecclesia. Some of you remember that. It was a sermon series called Ecclesia, and we called it Ecclesia because in the New Testament, that's the word for church. It's changed over the centuries, but in the New Testament Greek, in the New Testament, that word church, that you look in your English Bible and you see the word church, it's the Greek word Ecclesia. It's a compound word used from two, two Greek words, one being ek, which means out, E-K means out or out of. And then kaleo, which means to call. It's a verb. So the ekklesia is the, the assembly of a new community. It's people, a group of people, who have been called out of the general community of the world and to form a community of saints. Or as the New Testament calls us, holy ones sanctified ones, ones who've been set apart to be holy, to be God's people. So that's the, that's the word church in its original meaning, the, those who've been called out, okay? Now, over the centuries, it's changed names because of different languages. And so the earliest churches in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century AD, when the Germanic peoples were invading Rome and the Roman world... They found these, these buildings and these homes where Christians, people of the way, were meeting and worshiping and breaking bread together and praying for one another. And they called those places kurios, which is also a compound word in the Greek. Kurios meaning Lord, oikos meaning house. They called them the Lord's houses. These people that worshipped Jesus as Lord, they met in these places and the Germanic peoples called them kurios and then later on... In the English, they started calling them, in the old English, they started calling them the Kirch. Or in Scottish, the Kirk. So if you know someone named Kirk, their name is Church. They may not want to know that, but. And then later on in the English, it gets changed to Church. And so we use that word Church today in the modern English. But we are the called out ones, the Bible says. What are we called out of? Many things. What are we called into? Many things. The New Testament is replete in defining the things that we're called out of and the things that we're called into. We're a group of people, an assembly of people called out of self-centeredness and into Christ-centeredness, out of hopelessness and into a living hope, out of hiding and into being fully known, out of isolation and into adoption, out of sin and into holiness, out of slavery and into freedom, out of conceitedness and into covenanted community, humility before one another. And the call we discover today in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 comes only through the gospel. That's the vehicle through which every person that is called 
This is the only way they are called. It is through the gospel. So open up your Bibles there and follow along with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13 and 14. It'll be on the screen as well. The Apostle Paul writes to the church, But we should always give thanks to God for you, beloved brethren by the Lord, or beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit, and faith in truth. And it was for this he called you. Through our gospel. That you may gain the glory. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is going to be our main passage of scripture today. But we're going to see many others. But first I want you to focus on this particular verse. And what we learn from this particular verse about God and about ourselves and about the church. The first thing that you notice in this verse, Paul is giving thanks. In all of his letters he gives thanks to God for the work that he sees God doing. That work begins with election. Notice what he says here. We always give thanks to God for you because God has chosen you. You are chosen. You are elect. Now if I were to send you, a lot of people have a problem with this biblical doctrine of election because it doesn't seem fair. But let me, let me just, and, and sometimes we try to explain away what chosen means. But if I were to send one of my kids to the store and I'll say, I want you to go pick out 12 oranges. Knowing that there are only 12 oranges left. Okay? There in the produce section. There are only 12 left. And I say, I want you to go choose 12 oranges. And they come back and they say, okay, uh, this is all that's there. So we can't really choose, right? Or if they come back and say, well, we chose. So do they really choose? No, it's all that was there. But the Bible says about you, if you're a Christian, if you've been born again, God chose you before the foundation of the world. Paul describes it this way in Romans 9. He describes God as like a potter who has a big, huge lump of clay and he decides he's not going to let it waste. He's going to choose, he's going to take from that lump a part of clay and he's going to form it. He's going to fashion it into a vessel for honorable use. Why does he do that? Just by his grace. That's what grace means. God chooses. He, cho he chose you from the beginning in Christ. So we see this throughout the scripture. It's usually in New Testament uh, letters at the very beginning of Paul's letters to the churches. He just sets it up that way. So that we know. He's talking to a specific group of people. This letter is for us. And we're different. And so Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 through 6 says. This is in the very beginning of his letter to the church in Ephesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So we're not just chosen. But we're chosen for a purpose. 
He predestined us, he says in verse 5, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Which he, this is a key word here in Ephesians, freely bestowed on us in the beloved. God freely bestows his love on you and me through Christ. Again, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. In verse 4 he says, knowing brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. So God chooses us. In 1 Peter chapter 1, again, the same language is used to talk about the people of God. That we are chosen by God. A specific, a peculiar, a weird people. Chosen by God. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, this is in 1 Peter 1, to those who reside as strangers, as aliens, scattered throughout these regions, I'm not going to say them all, who are chosen. God's people are scattered, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, but they are chosen. He has chosen people in every tribe, tongue, and nation. So we discover that salvation is by election, number one, in this passage. Number two, in this passage, we discover that salvation is through sanctification. God doesn't call, God doesn't elect, God doesn't predestine anyone who he is not going to sanctify. You don't get a pass for sanctification. Chosen, but chosen through sanctification. We see that again in this verse, 13 through 14. Chose you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification. What does that word mean to sanctify? It means to set apart. It means to cleanse. It means to make holy. Because we must be made holy. And then he says, this is done in two ways. He mentions here, by the Spirit. And by the faith and truth, in the truth. By the Spirit and by faith and truth. That is, as you live as a Christian, you must be sensitive to our helper. The Holy Spirit. God gives us the helper, the Holy Spirit, to sanctify us in this life. To fit us for heaven. So we must be sensitive to our helper. We must listen to his promptings and, and respond to those promptings. God has given us the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. And then, by the faith and truth, we must be centered in the word of God. He's given us his word. We must be centered in the word. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul's going to say again that sanctification is God's will for you. You want to know, if you want to boil down what God's will for you is in this life, from point A to point B, Paul says it's this. It's sanctification. That, that's why God hasn't called you home yet. Wouldn't you love it? Just become a Christian, make your profession of faith, be baptized, and then God just whew, takes you to heaven? That'd be great. 
No, no tears, no pain, no testing, no trials, no letdowns, no disappointments. But, but he doesn't do that, does he? he? He allows us to stay in this world. He has a plan and a purpose, not just for the people around us, but for us to grow in grace. Because for whatever reason, we're not ready yet. God's will for us, Paul says, just in a nutshell, this side of heaven is your sanctification. Are you ready for that? Buckle up. The health and wealth prosperity gospel preachers are false. They are wrong. God's will for you right now is not your best life now. For your life right now to be like heaven. It's nothing in comparison to heaven. Not even close. Doesn't matter what kind of house you live in, what kind of job you have, what kind of relationships you have, or anything. Nothing in this life compares to the life to come. Nothing does. He has to prepare us. He has to fit us for heaven. The writer of Hebrews says, pursue sanctification. Pursue it. Sometimes we keep sanctification at arm's length. Lord, I don't want that in my life. I want easiness. Easiness does not produce gold in you. Stress does. Pain does. Testing does. Other people do. God puts us in a community. He leaves us in the world. He tells us here in Hebrews, pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. It's mandatory. So salvation is by election, through sanctification, by sanctification, by calling, through what? The gospel. Sanctification through the gospel. And we're going to get to that in a minute and, and break that down a little bit more because he actually personalizes the gospel in this passage. But let's get to the very last one really quickly. Salvation to glory. In 1 Peter 1, 7, Peter says, you've been chosen by God, you've been elect by God, you've been uh, set apart for these things, you're holy, you've been scattered as aliens throughout the world. For a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Even though now, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Have you been distressed? Since the day you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, between that moment and now, have you been, ever been stressed? Just raise your hand. Let everybody know that you're human. That you have a heart and lungs and a brain. Okay, yeah, all of us. Right? What's it for? For glory. To glory. He says, even though now if, if, for ne if necessary you've been distressed by various trials. He says in verse 7, that the proof of your faith, and he compares it to gold, that the proof of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. No Christian will be surprised to discover that their life was all to the glory of God in Christ when we appear before Him in heaven. No Christian will be surprised by that. Because they will have lived a life of sanctification where they've been sanctified and made holy through tough times and trials and they've persevered 
because of the help of the Holy Spirit and keeping the Word of God central in their life, when we get to heaven, we will not be surprised that it was all for the glory of Jesus Christ because that's how we've lived. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Amen? So we discover in this passage several things that God sovereignly and freely chooses sinners to save. That God provides all the sanctifying necessities for them to be saved. Spirit and the Word. And that God initiates His work of sanctification by calling them through the Gospel. That's how it's initiated. Through the Gospel. God reveals Himself through His Word. We don't find the Gospel in funny looking tree bark. Or... Some painting on display somewhere. All of creation declares the glory of the Lord. But not in such a way that can save our souls. Romans 1 describes that. What we do in our flesh until God opens our eyes, until the Holy Spirit awakens us, what we do as human beings, what we've always done, is we've taken the, the glory of the incorruptible of God and we've exchanged it, we've traded it, we've taken it to the pawn shop, and we've traded it for images made in man's image. So what has to happen? God has to communicate. He has to reveal himself to us and open up our eyes. Illuminate us. Quicken us. Pierce our hearts. Like those who heard Peter's sermon there in Acts chapter 2. The Bible says they were pierced to the heart. And they said, what must we do? You don't ask that question unless God is, doing, is starting to do a work in you. Unless the gospel is preached and proclaimed to your heart. So we discover that the gospel is the how in this passage. But my goodness, it, it doesn't stop there because do you see this word that's used before the word gospel? Many of us talk about the gospel sharing the gospel. And what we mean by that is that there's only one, right? In an objective sense. It's all about Jesus, his work. The gospel tells us certain things objectively that we can't move on. We're sinners, which makes the gospel good news, right? We're sinners who need, who need God to move because we can't move. We can't perform righteousness on our own. It's not good works that save us because we don't have any that can reckon us to the righteousness of God. So the gospel tells us very objective. You are a sinner. You have to agree with that. You are a sinner. Jesus is the only Savior and he died for you. He died for you. No one else. There's no other way to have eternal life. There's no other way to have a fulfilled life this side of heaven except through Jesus Christ. It's an objective gospel. So we call it the gospel all the time, don't we? Have you shared the gospel? Do you know the gospel? Proclaim the gospel? Because it's objective and we want to emphasize that. But Paul says here, he says, he called you for sanctification. He elected you in Christ his son. Through our gospel. Now. Is Paul claiming personal authority here? 
Is he saying, I am the only one with the goods? No one else. Don't listen to anybody else. It has to come from me or someone that I've authorized. Is he being proudly exclusivistic? Is he saying, no, it has to come? This is what cult leaders do today, right? This is what elders and leaders in cults do. They, they say, we have a prophet and anything that's in the Bible or that Jesus said or any of you Christians say that it's not filtered through this prophet, then it's, it's false. This prophet has an exclusivistic authority. Is Paul saying that? No, he's not saying that at all. Is he telling his audience that they can't believe any other source than Paul? No, he's not saying that. As a matter of fact, his focus is always on the content of the gospel. Remember Galatians chapter 1? In Galatians chapter 1, he urges his readers not to believe any other gospel, even if it comes from an angel from heaven. Can there be any other greater authority on earth than a messenger who comes from the very presence of God himself? No. Paul says... If their gospel is different than the one that we're preaching, let them be anathematized, accursed in your eyes. He says again in the New Testament, For I, Paul, delivered to you, church, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul is very specific when it comes to the gospel and the content of the gospel. So what is he saying here when he says our gospel? He is saying that as Christians, we take ownership of the fact that God has saved us to be messengers. The gospel is not something out there lying around in our house, bound by two covers of leather, or fake leather, if you're like me. <laughs> it's not something tucked away in a closet. The gospel of Jesus Christ has millions and has had millions of hosts called Christians who walk this earth and communicate with others on a daily basis. Paul is telling the church in Thessalonica that God is saving them through Paul's own sanctification. That as the Lord works through Paul's life and as Paul struggles against sin in his own life under the sanctifying work of the Spirit and the Word, those two gifts God gives us for sanctification, as he's doing this, the gospel that is currently transforming Paul's life is the same one that he's proclaiming from his lips. That's what he's saying. So Paul calls it our gospel. And this would become the pattern of the early church. Evangelization by way of discipleship. Evangelization that is reaching the world through the gospel that's taking place in my heart and in my life every day. Do you have a gospel? I don't just mean a message from a book or a memory verse. You see John 3.16 signs lifted up all over the hockey arenas and baseball stadiums. Maybe a better way to ask the question is, does the gospel have you? 
does the gospel have you personally? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ your gospel? Or is it simply the gospel? That's the question before us today. What is our gospel? Do we have it? Does it have us? Does it have you? I don't know about you, but sometimes I struggle to share my faith in the ways that in modern evangelicalism we are taught or trained to share our faith. Have you ever been given a stack of tracts to go leave in people's salads? You know, or ones that are like a fake $100 bill, right? You go lay it on the table for the waitress to think that's their tip. They turn it over and it's a gospel track of why they should believe in Jesus and we Christians left them nothing but that. Yeah, that'll work, right? Some of us struggle with evangelism. Evangelism, it really just simply means to gospelize people. To gospelize people. Churches teach evangelism training all the time. Maybe you've taken a class in evangelism. Anybody taking class in evangelism? You'll remember maybe some of these. I've, I've taken some of these. I've heard of some of these. The faith method. F-I-A-T-H. Like an acrostic. It stands for something. Evangelism explosion. The four spiritual laws. The Evangicube. Anybody ever seen the Evangicube? It's got little pictures on it. You know, you showed it. It's visual. It's a visualization. Some people use the Jesus film. Still being used all across the world to share the gospel. And all of these intend to train people in sharing the gospel with lost people. But many people feel inadequate, right? Using these methods. And some, some of us just stink at it, right? Now it's one thing to stink at evangelism. Because you don't know all the training material. Or you're just an introverted person. You're not an extrovert. You, you just melt at the thought of having to talk to another person that you don't know about anything. But it's a completely different issue if you stink at proclaiming the gospel to others because you don't proclaim it to yourself. If the gospel's not your gospel... You haven't internalized it. You don't live on it every day. It's a whole other matter. If you don't feel unable to gospelize others because you don't gospelize yourself. If you are inadequate in communicating the gospel truths to other souls because your own soul is unaffected by them. You, you need the gospel for yourself daily. Daily. You need it. Your sinful soul, my sinful soul, our souls need daily sanctification. Sanctification is not the day you were baptized or you confessed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just the day that God takes you home to heaven. It's every day between point A and point B. You need the gospel. The gospel must be yours. It must be ours as a church. 
Christians are gospel hosts. We carry it in us. Listen to the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.10 when he talks about how as Christians we have the gospel that we, that we share with people but we have it in earthen vessels, he says. We're made of clay. We live, we die, we fail, we fall down. We're wounded. He says we're always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us but life in you. This is sanctification at work on a daily basis. Paul's growth as a disciple gives life to new believers. He can't, he can't pretend that he's somebody that he's not. He can't say, well, I'm coming to you and you all know who I am. My reputation precedes me, my education, my experience. You've heard of the gospel that I've preached in these places. You've heard of these growing communities. I have really no need anymore in my life for the gospel because I've mastered the gospel. No. He doesn't say that. He says things like this. Whatever things were gained to me, I count as trash, as rubbish. Compared to, in view of, the surpassing value of knowing. You see that? Knowing. Not having to, coming to know Christ or going to know Christ even better in the future, but daily Knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. That I may be found in Him at any moment. At any moment found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. But that which comes through faith. He says in 2 Corinthians 2.17. He compares his ministry and the ministry of Timothy and Titus and other Apostles and evangelists, he says, we are not like others peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God. We speak in Christ in the sight of God. Paul says, I am of no use to anybody in this world if I am not in the gospel every day. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is not mortifying my sin and showing me who I am, that I'm a sinner in need of grace every day and not any less today than yesterday, but even more. Because I, as I'm under the leadership of the Holy Spirit and under the teaching of the Word, I come to the realization that I am a sinner more today than I was yesterday. You see also in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, the verse after these. He says, So then, brethren, so then, brethren, stand firm, hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So Paul says, he doesn't say, hey, pay attention to what we wrote you. He didn't say that only. He says, follow our example. Follow our example. Receive our gospel as your own. 
hold to the tradition. Now today in the modern era, we like to be scholarly about this. We're like, learn the information. That's, that's the modern world. Learn the information. Educate yourself. Get the info. That's not what Paul says here. He says, hold to the tradition. I know tradition has a bad, it's kind of a bad word, right, today. Tradition bad. Information from God's word, good. But if we're just robotic information communicators, that the gospel has not worked in us and is working on us daily, we've completely missed it. Paul says there's a tradition. And in the early church, 1st and 2nd century AD, there were many people who would pick up the gospels and learn about Jesus and master the information but who because they did not keep to the rule of faith and what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, they were considered heretics. These were very devout people, very learned people. But they didn't hold to the tradition of living by the gospel. And the gospel being theirs. And their life being the gospel. So later that tradition that Paul talks about was called the rule of faith. The regula fide. The teaching. The word taught and received is confirmed by their very lives. And it has to be confirmed by our very lives as well. This is why Paul instructs Timothy in his letters to Timothy that we have today. He says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. I believe more seminaries and Bible colleges need to internalize that and really put that into practice and churches too. To live this out. I'm guilty. I'm guilty as much if not more as anybody else of not thinking of the gospel on a daily basis as my gospel. Is it really mine? I don't preach to myself the gospel as much as I should. I think to myself as a pastor, as someone who has a 20 years in ministry experience and who has a PhD in historical theology and a master's degree in theology, I think I, 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 am, I am above this. I should know. The, these things are elementary for me. I'm a husband and a father. I'm supposed to be mature. And folks, I'll confess to you, I have bought the lie that spiritual maturity, that a mark of spiritual maturity is that I don't need to mature anymore. And it's fake. It's false. It's a lie. I need the gospel more today than yesterday and more today than the day I came to faith in Christ. And if I stop preaching and proclaiming the gospel to myself, and if we stop preaching the gospel to ourselves, we will be lost, we will be worthless to the world around us as a bunch of hypocrites and pretenders. He says in another place, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, this is in 1 Thessalonians 1. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. 
know what that means? Our gospel came to you in a way that's evident to everyone that we believe it. It's ours. It affects our lives every day. And then he says, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators in us, of us and the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. In some, they had a gospel because the gospel had them. Paul says, you received the gospel from us, not just as a message. It is a way of life. As a life-sustaining truth every day. You saw that we preached the gospel to ourselves and we lived it out because we endured with much hardship. And you believed what we were saying because we lived it out and you're doing the same thing, and wow, the entire region, we don't even have to go to these other places because they're hearing it because of you and because of the life that you lived. So what is he saying here? He's saying that as Christians, we take ownership of the fact that God has called us to be messengers. We are hosts. The gospel is not something lying around in our houses. The gospel must have you if it's going to have those you love. It must have us, church, if it will have our community. And it must have the church in America if it's going to have America. It has to have the church in a nation if it's going to have that nation. So how do we regularly gospelize ourselves? I'm going to leave you with these few things. How do we do it? How do we gospelize ourselves? How do we preach and proclaim the gospel? How do we feed our own soul with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Number one, three things that the gospel has to remind us of every day. That is sin, self, and the Savior. Sin, self, and the Savior. The gospel will remind us of these three things as we preach it to ourselves daily. Number one, you must allow the gospel to remind you and continually convince you of the hideousness and the danger of sin. I need that. Do you need that? Entertainment that we feed our mind every day tells us the complete opposite. I can't remember the last movie or show or reality show that I saw that they were condemning sin. It's always a little more, a little more, a little more. And so what do we have to do? Co-workers, friends, neighbors, what do we have to do? We have to preach the gospel to ourselves or we'll lose sight of the hideousness of sin. It'll just become part of our theology, tucked away somewhere. When somebody brings it up, well, what do you believe about sin? Oh, we pull it out. We talk, well, this is my theology of sin. 
but our life doesn't really reflect it. This is why I need the gospel preached to me every day, and you do too. Number two, you must allow the gospel to remind you of the frailty of your flesh. Because over time, we start to think, as my grandmother used to say, we get a little bit too big for our britches. We start to think a little too highly or too greatly of ourselves. We're getting better. It's a little bit closer. I've almost mastered this. You'll convince yourself of those lies unless you preach the gospel to yourself which says sin separates you from God. Sin kills you. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes you. No sin, the Bible says, is hidden from his sight. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we say we have no sin, we are liars. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of all of our sin and cleanse us from unrighteousness. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves so the purpose of the gospel, it's not just to get people into the kingdom. It's not just to convert the lost. It's to sanctify the saint. And then finally, you must allow the gospel to remind you of the sufficiency of the Savior. He's not like you. He's not like me. His love never fails. The longer you go through life and you're being sanctified by God and you're let down by people and you're let down by yourself and you're disappointed over and over and over, you must preach the gospel to yourself that the Savior is all sufficient. What a friend we have in Jesus. Hmm. He doesn't turn away any who repents. He never grows tired or weary when we come to Him. He knows your weaknesses. The Bible says He's acquainted with your griefs. The writer of Hebrews says, unlike the, the priests and the holy men of our day in the world, we do not, that is we as believers, we as Christians, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. When is your time of need? Mine's every day. The old hymn says, I need thee when? Every hour. Every hour. Do you need him every hour? Preach the gospel to yourself. Let the gospel be yours. Give yourself daily to the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope for the world. It is the constantly running vehicle through which God sanctifies His chosen ones. And when He chooses us, when His chosen ones are being sanctified by the soul-cleansing power of the gospel, we are one step closer to glory. 
and we bring life to the world around us. Must be our gospel.